is Outstanding in the Field, a podcast by Perennia highlighting production practices, pest management, and more for field crops in Nova Scotia. I'm your host and Provincial Field Crop Specialist, Caitlin Condon. This episode, I'm joined by Aaron Mills to discuss all things malting barley. Malting barley is a specialty grain crop used to make the malt used in the production of beer and whiskey. Aaron is a research scientist at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, where his work focuses on cropping systems, plant stress physiology, above-ground and below-ground relationships in agroecosystems, and novel crop development. In this episode, Aaron and I discuss some of the challenges presented by our maritime climate when growing malting barley, as well as the unique quality parameters in comparison to the feed barley that we're more familiar with growing. All right, thanks for being here today, Aaron. We're going to talk about malting barley. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. Awesome. Let's start right in. Can you tell me a little bit about what got you interested in malting barley? Basically, I started as a home brewer when I was in grad school, and this is when I was working on my PhD, and I was super poor living in Halifax. And basically, more out of to save money, I started brewing at home. And then moved from these canned kits into using all grains and hops and things like that. And then I soon discovered that it wasn't, I mean, it was a good way to save money, but it was also a good way to brew beer better than what you could buy in the store. So Mm. I really got into brewing and learned how to craft different recipes using different types of malt. And then towards the end of my PhD, we were actually living in, in Kenfield and I was working part-time at what was then sea level brewery. Mm-hmm. So I, I got a taste of brewing at a commercial scale and craft brewery and really learned more about the numbers and what the quality actually translates into at a commercial scale. Eventually, I I ended up getting a job here in Charlottetown as an agronomist, and we work on field crops, and barley's a a massive crop Mm -hmm. in Prince Edward Island, and I was interested in in seeing why we didn't grow malt barley here and what were some of the reasons, and I'm happy to talk about them. Cool. No, awesome. That's a great journey. (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit about what you've been working on so far on malt barley? Yes. When I first started, we just wanted to do a little bit of a look and see. So malt barley, you know, a lot of the varieties that are developed out West, they're considered Western Canadian barley varieties, but Mm -hmm. they actually do go through the fusarium disease testing in Charlottetown. So that's something that I didn't know, but, you know, it's a little bit different to managing something for quality versus spraying it with millions and millions of fusarium spores to see how it stands up. So we wanted to just take a hand of malt varieties and grow them out here and see what could happen. So the Atlantic Grains Council was very supportive early on, and it was with the help of the now retired uh, Richard Martin, who was a plant pathologist, who hooked me up with some of his plant breeder contacts in Western Canada to get some of these varieties. And also, Alec Chu, who is the, the barley or was the barley breeder for Eastern Canada, he kind of took me under his wing and, and got me set up with a bunch of other sites to actually look at 
some of the driving factors for malt quality on the East Coast. We just kind of went from a very general look and see, and initially it was just to see if we could actually pull it off and to try to understand some of the reasons why we weren't growing it. Mm-hmm. And we had a we had a pretty good idea after that. And then it developed into this barley cluster project where we had five sites in Eastern North America looking at a couple different factors. And things just kind of expanded there. We hooked up with some folks at the John Innes Center at the UK. And we started growing some heritage barley varieties. I can talk about that a little bit later. And then we plugged in with a group in the University of North Dakota who's who's growing. It's every year. This is probably the sixth year, but they, they take a, it's like a diversity panel of varieties that were developed in the U.S. and in Europe. And these are all modern varieties. Okay. And they just take all the data and, and try and come up with the best malt barley for our region. So really this is all happening at the same time that the craft beer thing is is going on and folks are interested in locally produced malt barley and mm-hmm. everybody's kind of asking the same question, you know, like why, why aren't we growing malt barley here? There's a whole bunch of people kind of working on the same thing. Yeah, no, it seems like the time is right for that opportunity for sure. So you mentioned quality. So what are the goals of malt barley production and how does that differ from feed production? The important thing that I've I've found is that the malt barley, especially right off the bat, there are a lot of scientists that work with barley in Agriculture Canada, but I'm really the only one that's working specifically with the craft sector. And that's more the East Coast style here, you know, where feed barley will always be the way to go for most farmers here on the East Coast. And malt barley is very much a, a niche crop for us. Uh, there are parts in, of New Brunswick where they grow larger acreages, but for the most part, we're, it's a niche crop. So mm-hmm. really the biggest part of the whole malt barley thing is being in touch with the value chain. Mm-hmm. So part of the value chain, we have the farmers at the top, then we have the maltsters, who, uh, you know, malt the barley, and then we have the brewers at the end. Mm -hmm. Basically, the decisions that are made by the farmer will affect the entire value chain. Really, there's two different gates that we have to go through. Right off the field, barley has to meet certain quality parameters in order to be accepted for malt. Mm -hmm. And then from the maltster to the brewer, it has to meet certain quality factors. So the biggest thing for farmers is to maintain a lower protein. So we want the protein to be between nine and 11%. And the other thing that we struggle with on the East Coast is the pre-harvest sprout. Mm. That's actually the barley starting the sprouting process in the field. And a lot of times you can't even tell that, that it's sprouted. It just looks like normal barley, but the enzymes have been activated. The other thing that we struggle with, not just in barley, is Dawn. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fusarium. Yeah, so. fusarium, for sure. So those are the three biggest things that farmers need to manage. Yeah, so I was reading some of the work you did on cultural practices to improve malt barley quality. And it talked about pre-germination, as you just mentioned. So what can we do to minimize the risk of pre-germination or is there anything we can do? Yeah. So basically to give you the 
I guess, pre-germination 101 mm -hmm. to back it up here is the barley, uh, there's enzymes on the outside of the, the kernel and those are activated by moisture essentially. And so when those enzymes are activated, they start to convert the starch in the grain into sugar, which is, you know, really important because that's what yeast consume in order to make alcohol. So that's okay for the maltster to do it. And usually with base malts, the maltster will activate those enzymes and start the starch conversion process into sugar mm -hmm. and then shut it down. And then the brewer will take it the rest of the way when he or she starts the, the mashing. So what the industrial brewers wanted was what we call a very hot enzymatic package. Most of the barley or pretty much all of the barley, malt barley grown in Canada is grown under very dry conditions in Western Canada. Right. So when that barley goes to an industrial maltster, they need to malt, you know, minimum a thousand tons every four days. They need those enzymes as active as possible in order to start the conversion process so they don't lose any time. Okay. So basically designed to be malted off the back of a combine, low dormancy, high enzymes. When you take these varieties that were selected for Western Canada and you put them in a high moisture, high humidity environment like the Maritimes, it just takes, you know, one heavy dew close to the, close to the harvest date yeah. to start this process. And I mean, it, we get dew all the time. We get high humidity, we get rain, we get everything like that. That's the challenge with the pre-harvest sprout is finding that balance. And for a farmer who's really concerned about pre-harvest sprout, you know, one of the, I, I don't want to say easiest ways, but one of the most straightforward ways to deal with this is to cut it when the moisture is high. Mm -hmm. uh, so not as ripe as it would be for traditional feed barley. Okay. And put it on air essentially in your grain tanks. So you're cutting it at 18 or 20% moisture and then drying it down after that. So okay. that's a, certainly a challenge. Uh, people aren't used to that. I mean, maybe for soybeans or corn, but not for, for barley, right? It so, feels a little strange to say, oh, go cut this at 18 or yeah. 19%. If we look at varieties that don't have this hot enzymatic package, mm -hmm. then that's also, that's another option, right? to look at varieties that were developed in places that are similar to ours that aren't, you know, Western Canadian or, or Midwestern U.S. varieties. Yeah. So the U.K. would be a good example of that. Exactly. The, the U.K. So when we measure malt quality off the field, one of the things we look at is germination energy. And, you know, we take 100 seeds over a period of 36 hours, we would at three different time points, we're pulling out those that are germinated. Usually with the Western Canadian varieties, pretty much you hit 100% or as close to 100% as you're going to get within the first 12 hours. Wow. But the European varieties, they'll hit the same numbers, but it'll take longer to get there. Right. So I think that's, that's the selection's been different with their, their breeders over there. Yeah, yeah, it gives you a little more flexibility at that harvest yeah. end. Well, I think that's a good time to talk about varieties. So are there specific varieties for malting barley? 
Yeah, there have been ones that were developed specifically for these coasts, mm -hmm. like uh, Newdale and Cerveza. Okay. I guess they weren't developed specifically for the, the East Coast. It's just that they seem to have traits that would, you know, lend themselves to not sprouting in the field right. uh, here. But now Synergy is another Western Canadian variety that we're seeing do very well here. It's very disease resistant. Oh, great. It's still fairly hot as far as enzymes go, but farmers who are growing that and who know what they're doing are happy to cut it early and, and dry it down. Mm -hmm. But we are seeing there's another variety that's done really well in our trials that uh, we're seeing become more available at the commercial scale, and that's ESMA. Okay. And I think CCAN has that variety, and I think uh, Eric Terrio is, is one that can, is the only person who's carrying it on the East Coast. But that's a European variety, and it has very high yield, pre-harvest sprout resistance, and you can actually hit it with a little bit more nitrogen and not affect the protein so much. So that uh, seems to be a really good fit for the East Coast. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a good one for yeah. sure. So you talked a little bit earlier about some heirloom varieties. So what's the process of kind of bringing those back? Okay, so those malting varieties, like some of them are a couple hundred years or more old. And we got in with a group at the John Innes Center in Norwich, mm -hmm. England. And they have a germplasm repository for a whole bunch of different crops, but they were bringing a lot of these malt barley varieties out and trying to commercialize them. One of the interesting things in the malting world is brewers, when they're brewing, they have their base malt, they call it. And, you know, essentially it's just called pale malt or it's called two row, but there is an English variety that a lot of brewers would be using to brew English ales and it's called Maris Otter. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a specialty variety. It's a winter barley variety and it's crisp malting has proprietary ownership over, over Maris Otter. So, oh. you know, out of all the barleys, you never ever hear of a single variety because in a lot of cases it's, they're blended. They're just kind of treated differently, right. but Maris Otter is the one that growers ask for by name and it's it's a brand but it's it is a type of malts it's it's an older variety and that's that's where the people from the John Innes Center that's kind of where they were going was looking at these heritage malt varieties and then looking to develop them commercially as certain flavors that were associated with those varieties so initially I think we had about 10 or 15 grams of each of seed of mm -hmm. each of these varieties. And we just propagated those up and we measure uh, disease, uh, pre-harvest sprout resistance, and we measure protein. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, we haven't done any malting of these yet, but we have a lot of agronomic data. So in Brandon, they're running it in their uh, their fusarium nursery. It's been through our fusarium nursery. We started out with 80 of these varieties, and we're down to around 30 that kind of make the cut that aren't, you know, laying on the ground or, well, some of them still lay on the ground. We had a kind of a lay on the ground year. Oh, this yeah. year <laughs> <laughs> so this, this was a good lodging year. Uh, past, a good test. Th past three. Yeah, the past three years, it was like, 
you know, Mediterranean conditions for us. <laughs> so we didn't really get that lodging pressure, but we had that pressure this year. Yeah. Yeah. So we were just measuring them for uh, essentially agronomy mm -hmm. and none of the flavor or anything else. And I honestly, uh, uh, we're in a little bit of a collaboration with Shoreline Malting and Two Crows Brewing, and they've mm -hmm. selected about half a dozen of these that they're interested in using as, you know, signature malt varieties and signature beers. And cool. I actually, my, my technician was dropping her kid off at university. So I had to get on the combine, which is something that I never, ever do. <laughs> I have to tell you that these, these are different. These combine differently. You know, we oh, had, really? yeah, we had synergy as our check yeah. and, you know, it just went through just like you would expect it to, but these heritage varieties, they definitely malt differently or mm. malt, they combine Quite differently. Definitely. Like, uh, yeah, uh, they're chunkier for okay. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Harder to separate like from the head or? Um, yeah, we had to definitely dial in our wind and drum before we went in, like it was so dirty uh, initially yeah. when we kept with the standard settings. Once we dialed those in, we harvested all the heritage varieties and then went through the synergy and the synergy just came out like a polished grain, <laughs> you know, it was like so clean. So the yield is not, I mean, it's okay. Right. Um, it's just, there's a story associated with that and, you know, uh, largely it's marketing mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, uh, again, we're in a niche kind of space with, uh, with this type of agriculture. So, right. you know, I think stuff like that is okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's definitely something I wouldn't have expected that it would like behave differently through the combine. No, like... no, I <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about some of the other agronomic practices a little bit. How does seeding rate differ from like a regular barley or does it and, and fertility, yeah. things like that? Yeah. Okay. So the, um, uh, the seeding rate, uh, we only looked at a couple of different seeding rates mm -hmm. in our study. And we found that if you get the barley in on time, there wasn't really a huge difference. If you end up waiting, then, you know, you definitely want to go with a higher seeding rate. Right. But with malt barley, tillers are the enemy. So you want to oh. do whatever you can to make essentially a true plant from from every seed. Right. And it's all about having evenness in the size so that the uh, germination happens consistently mm -hmm. through the whole batch. And part of it is the, the grains are actually cleaned based on size. So okay. uh, everything has to be the same. So if you get right. some little scraggly tillers in there, they're just going to end up being blown out anyways. Mm. It's not going to contribute to your yield at all. So right. it's better to, to use a higher seeding rate. We like to go in at, at around 400 seeds per meter squared. Okay. I'm not sure what that is in pounds per acre and everybody should do the math anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. If there's one thing that people take from this is do the math when you're calculating your seeding rate. Totally. But, um, <laughs> And there is a quite a bit of variety in the, the seed size. So mm -hmm. it's definitely something that you want to sit down and pencil okay. out before you plant these things. So we found that that nitrogen with these, 
Western Canadian varieties anyway, uh, nitrogen really is the enemy, mm -hmm. which, you know, we found our zero nitrogen actually had the, the highest quality, really? but the lowest yield. So obviously, yeah, you know, that's the, it's hard to produce grains without nitrogen. <laughs> yeah. So if we just think about it in those terms, if you can get away with not putting down as much fertility, then your quality is going to be higher. A lot of the Atlantic Grains Council work, they found that uh, you could easily get away with a 70 or 80 units of nitrogen okay. with the seed. We've been experimenting a little bit with Agritane and Super U, mm -hmm. uh, putting that down, and we've found excellent results with that. And it's kind of a slow release right. type effect that we're seeing with that. The previous crop certainly matters. You know, if you could be probably have tons of nitrogen if you're on a uh, clover plow down or something like that. Right. And just put the seed down, you wouldn't really need too much going in with the, the barley to carry you through. Again, it's all about being plugged into that value chain and having the maltster uh, ready for it and ready to pay a little bit more for it to sacrifice uh, the yield for quality. Totally, yeah. Yeah. What about like a top dress? Could you kind of spoon feed it along? If those slow release products have promise, then would that be another option? Yeah, it could be. The only issue is the... You, there is a risk of increasing the protein. So if the, if the nitrogen goes on too late, then yeah. chances are it'll just like in, in wheat, right? So, and timing. that's the, yeah, yeah. It's all about timing. So the, that's the, one of the traits that we've found with these European varieties is they can handle the nitrogen and okay. they're lower protein varieties anyway. So you can, um, uh, and I mean, we haven't done the agronomy specifically on European varieties yet. We've mm -hmm. kind of gone with the standard 70 or 80 units. And we've found that in any given year, the proteins are always lower in the European varieties. So, you know, there's a little bit of room there to, to push it a little bit and probably get a little bit more. Yield. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough, it's definitely a tough one. And, you know, the barley, it has to be hungry. Like it, right. it doesn't look good. You know, it's, um, it, it's one of those things that you just have to put your head down and keep on driving <laughs> and not think about it too much. Yeah, not a pretty crop, but. No, no. So in terms of challenges specific to the Maritimes, um, Fusarium, probably one of the biggest yeah. ones. Yeah. I would say the biggest, yeah. you know, that's, that's the one thing that's, that's out of farmer's control, essentially. Um, yeah. You really, especially down in the valley, uh, you guys, uh, there's so much corn, you know, it's, it's a tough go growing barley, uh, malt barley. Yeah. You never want to follow barley or uh, follow corn with barley. Right. You know, really we're looking at, at least two fungicide applications, okay. uh, possibly three, depending how fast your maturation is. So we usually like to go with a foliar early mm -hmm. on and before stem elongation. Right. And then we'll go with a um, Prosero or or something like that at anthesis, as, as close to anthesis as possible. So they're going to end up with different flavor profiles and stuff as they as they work their way through and go through the malting process. And you said that some of those are often blends of different. Yeah. 
I know the monsters, I mean, it's really flavor's been kind of a controversial issue. When we think about, you know, there's a lot of crops and there's talk about terroir where, you know, you grow something in a certain area and it has a certain certain flavor. And I mean, you guys would hear about that with all the vineyards the in grapes, the, yeah, <laughs> the sure. So, you know, there's, if it happens and if it is a recognized thing, you know, there's, there's people who believe in it and people who don't believe in it. So, I mean, that's one factor that could potentially affect the flavor. Mm-hmm. Variety is another thing that could affect the flavor your water profile that you're using when in the malting process that could affect it you know there's certain levels of calcium or whatever in in the water Mm -hmm. and then finally by the time it gets to the brewer the charlottetown water profile is probably a lot different than halifax or truro or fredericton or wherever so i mean that's going to influence the flavor as well it's a bit of a moving target. And mm-hmm. I know that the last thing that plant breeders want to hear is selecting for flavor because it's so subjective. Yeah. I mean, you know, we could have like you and I could be drinking the, the exact same beer and have it, totally different ideas of what it tastes like. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's kind of a bit of a slippery slope where we start talking about blending different varieties and, and things like that. And right. I, definitely don't discount that there aren't flavor differences but you know i it's i don't know that the farmers should be worried too too much about that concentrate more on on growing a decent crop and and not so much on absolutely the maltsters and the brewers i mean uh they like all of the risk is on the farmer right so really it's going to be on the the monsters and the brewers to figure out how to best use the varieties that are um that the farmers able to grow as easily as possible and you know uh, without the input so when we're looking at different varieties and if um one is more susceptible to lodging or pre-harvest sprout or disease then uh, there's going to be a cost to mitigating those risks and it's just uh, reinforces the importance of the farmer being in touch with the monster and the, the brewer and being like, like a whole value chain type yeah, thing yeah develop that relationship right absolutely from the get-go. so would there be any special considerations for site selection for yeah i think so well the the biggest thing is if it's lower land and it's close to a waterway or something like that, and it might be more susceptible to fog or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly one, like if you're growing in a hollow or something like that, it's, uh, it's or interval land, that's, that's one consideration. Right. But I, I think the, the biggest thing is rotation. You know, you just, you want to make sure that you're not following another grain or following corn. And if you're following a um, a legume, like a a clover or peas, if anybody's still growing peas, then, you know, that's, (laughs) those are things to think about more in terms of how you're going to manage your fertility. And then, you know, some of the other crops, it's more of a disease thing. Right. Soybean, any problem following soybeans? Not so, not so much. It really, it's a bit of a selfish plant. It doesn't leave a whole lot. 
around in the soil. Yeah. It's, it's certainly, there is a little bit of residual nitrogen uh, there and it's something to consider, but we haven't really come across too many problems with following soybean. Right. What about cover crops? Yeah, I think underseeding has always been a really common practice here in PEI. And mm -hmm. we were trying to get some money to look at the effect of underseeding versus no underseeding. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't end up getting any money, but there has been some work done in Quebec to show that when the fusarium in the soil is starting to launch those bores, mm -hmm. the uh, clover underneath actually blocks those oh, from cool. local infection. And yeah, it was kind of a cool paper out of, I think it was Laval actually. And okay. um, so, you know, that's, that's one thing that would help if there was a lot of disease in the field, it would help the immediate local infection. But there's a whole bunch of corn being grown in the area like there is in the valley, then yeah. there's probably <laughs> enough fusarium in the air that it's, you know, it's it's uh, wouldn't do much. In terms of following cover crops, we're just doing some work on that on that now and it really doesn't look like there's a whole lot of difference with barley. Oat seems to respond more to to what was grown previously. Okay. Barley, not so much. And soybean definitely responds to what was grown previously, depending on the crop. But yeah, I think some cover crops, they just end up being weeds in the, the field. So, you know, that's just another layer of uh, management that you have to think about. Yeah, no, for sure. Another expense too. <laughs> yep, potentially. Um, so... Overall, what do you think is the potential opportunity for this crop in the Maritimes? I mean, obviously there's a little bit going on already, but where could we, where could we take it? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's important to be plugged in with the value chain. And I keep coming back to that because there's so many people that have jumped into growing malt barley and it just, it ends up being unacceptable yeah. for anything, right? So then you're stuck with something that you can't even sell for, for feed. Right. Yeah, I think being in touch with the maltsters and the brewers and just knowing exactly what they want, there certainly is a good potential for that. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing growth in the hard liquor whiskeys and you know things like that. There's always potential there. The craft breweries are coming around mm -hmm. it's taken a long time i don't know <laughs> they're you know it's it was difficult at first because they knew everything so now yeah. that that there's a bit of a learning curve we're starting to crack into the to get them to try a few more riskier things and right. you know when they're used to using uh things that are they don't even have to think about the numbers right. because they're, it's what they're familiar with the numbers, there may be a little bit of variability coming out of some of the local malt houses. And if brewers don't know what those numbers mean, then they don't really know how to deal with them in mm -hmm. the, the malt house. So yeah, I think communication with the maltsters is absolutely a key to the success of this this crop. And in terms of, I know there was there were significant acreages in northern New Brunswick where okay. they used to ship malt to Montreal to be malted. Okay. Um, I'm not sure where that is now you know i think they need as many crops as they can possibly get into their rotation in new brunswick especially yeah. so it's, it's just important to have as many options as possible there's so, 
Yeah, I, th I don't know. It's, I think it's it's an option. It's a crop option, and we need as many as we can get right now. Yeah, well, we've got lots of lots of breweries. Yep. <laughs> got to keep keep those rolling. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for the information, and it was great to learn more about this crop. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on the show, Caitlin. Awesome, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Outstanding in the Field. Stay tuned for a written summary of this episode coming up in the next edition of the CropLinks newsletter, which you can subscribe to by visiting our website, www.perennia.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the exciting topics coming in future episodes. Follow us on social media at NSPerennia. Thanks to Perennia for supporting this podcast and our marketing and communications team, Moira Anderson and Patty Ryan for production and design. Join me next month for a discussion on variety trials for cereals, soybeans, and corn in the Maritimes.